Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. Good afternoon and welcome. This is the 34 Circe Salon, where we discuss all vast and sundry matters of history, history, archaeology, adventure. And today's broadcast is on Machu Picchu. Welcome. Uh, welcome, Gary. Welcome, George. We have with us today, I'm Sean Newcomb, and we have with us today, um, Gary and George. I'd like you guys to introduce yourselves uh, and tell us about you and what... Uh, how it relates to this topic of Machu Picchu. Oh, go ahead, Gary, why don't you go first? Or yep. George, okay, whoever. Yeah. Oh, sure, I'll go first. Uh, my name is George. Um, I actually went and visited Ra- uh, Machu Picchu um, not too recently. I want to say maybe about three years ago. So I, I have kind of a, uh, a fresh perspective on the location. Uh, in terms of myself, <clears throat> um, I'm kind of a VR hobbyist and a streamer online. And you did a VR recording of your of being on Machu Picchu, correct? That correct. people can find online. That, that's really uh, exciting. We'll talk about that a little bit in, in a little bit. Um, but thank you, Gary. Could you give us a quick intro for you? Yes, uh, I'm I'm an archaeologist and uh, got my BA, MA, and PhD at UCLA, and then I wound up teaching there for twenty years until I retired. Uh, and uh, during that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we mentioned previously on your other podcast, uh, <clears throat> I uh, was the archaeologist that Lucasfilm used as her consultant for uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Indiana Jones series. Uh, and interestingly, two years later, after the movie was released in 1981, uh, I was approached by a student to do a project at Machu Picchu. And I thought, well, that'd be great. Uh, I've never been to South America. And of course, Machu Picchu was legendary. And so I wrote a proposal uh, with the help of a colleague from UCLA. And we got the grant and we went down there and conducted an excavation. It was, it was fantastic. We'll get into that in that detail. Um, by the way, guys, what kind of tea are you having today? We're in our salon gentlemen at ease talking about our adventures what tea are you having gary i'm having mint tea i love it and how about you george oh you know traditional uh green tea good good all right i've got peppermint tea so and we've got we've, we've got a, a, an array of beverages so we're ready to go uh for the for the listener machu picchu i think most people have i believe at least heard of it um we want to talk about it's place in the Incan Empire. Uh, for the Spanish-speaking people in the audience, there's, of course, Pablo Neruda's great poem, Las Atulas de Machu Picchu, which uh, is just a beautiful, and I invite everybody to go look it up uh, in both Spanish or in English. Why don't we start with Gary? Tell us what what is Machu Picchu and what is its significance? Well, Machu Picchu uh, is a... Uh... It's so spectacular. It's one of the most spectacular archaeological sites in the world, not only because of the uh, wonderful ruins, but because of its setting in, in the Andes. Um, and uh, it came to the world's attention 
1911 when a uh, professor from Yale, Hiram Bingham, went down there to Peru. And his objective was to find uh, a lost city called Vilcapampa. And that was a city that the last Inca emperor escaped to from the Spanish and allegedly took something like 500 llamas loaded down with gold and stuff, you know? And so the Spanish were avidly trying to find it. I I don't believe they ever did. And so uh, Hiram Bingham uh, heard about these ruins, you know, up on this high uh, tabletop mountain and uh, hacked his way through the jungle and found it. I I just want to read you an account of that uh, from his book called Lost City of the Inca. Okay. Uh, And he says, quote, crossing the bridge and the the bridge he's talking about was made out of logs and uh, I walked across uh, not not the same bridge but a similar bridge which is scary as hell because it's 2,000 feet below me on the thing. Uh, Crossing the bridge made me wonder if this jaunt to find an alleged Inca ruin wasn't more quixotic than practical. There I was on hands and knees inching my way across a half dozen slender vine lashed poles directly under us, far below the frothing rapids of the Urubama River, roared angrily. And then when he got to the ruins, he says, quote, In sudden excitement, I forgot my fatigue and hurried the length of the wide terrace toward the tangled jungle forest beyond it. I plunged once more into the damp undergrowth matting and fought my way through with vines and foliage. Reminds me of that scene at the beginning of Raiders. And then I stopped, Mm -hmm. heart thumping wildly. A mossy wall loomed before me, half hidden in the trees. Huge blocks, huge huge stone blocks seemed glued together, but without mortar, the finest Inca construction. I want to ask you more, and then George as well, more about what it's like when you approach it. Machu Picchu are ruins in uh, the uh, Andes, I believe. Yes. It was built by the Incas. So let's just, just say a little bit about who the Incas were. My understanding is the Incan Empire was a vast and advanced civilization that extended from Peru through Ecuador. I believe at its height had 12 million people under its sway. Um, what more could you tell us, uh Gary, about the Incas. Or George, if you want to jump in too, if you have any info on that. <clears throat> well, uh, the Incas have been called the New World Romans, something mm-hmm. you would like. Um, yes, yes. And uh, they supposedly originated around uh, Lake Titicaca area, high in the Andes. Uh, but they were uh, conquerors like the Romans. They became very efficient like the Romans. Mm-hmm. And so they conquered civilization after civilization. Uh, the Moche down on the coast and Paracas and Nazca and so on. Um, And their empire, you're right, it stretched way to the north to Ecuador and way to the south into uh, uh, northern Chile. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so uh, it's believed that uh, Machu Picchu was built by the uh, emperor Pachacuti, around the mid-15th century, around 1450 uh, A.D. So just before and, uh, the uh, explorers from Europe arrived. Yeah, only 77 years before, because wow. uh, you know the uh, Pizarro invaded Peru in 1527 um, and proceeded to conquer the empire, you know, another one of these 
incredible conquest, just like uh, Cortez conquered the Aztecs. Well, and, and you get, you know, with, with that conquest too, I mean, you think about the disease and all the stuff that's that felled a lot of these tribes beforehand. And you think also about what might have been had there not been this interruption of the development of these great civilizations, these advanced civilizations in the, in the region, uh, had not this clash occurred when it occurred. Um, so it is, um, there's also a little bit of melancholy, a lot of melancholy about it. Let me just ask George, what was your experience like when you, to get to Machu Picchu, how did you get there? What was the whole, how did your journey work? Um, I wish I did a little bit more, uh, research in terms of my exact, um, travel plans, but I remember coming in on the train out there, um, and we stopped at the, um, the city at the base of the mountain, I believe it was Aguas Caliente. Uh, it was where the, uh, the big river ran through it. Mm-hmm. Um, from my experiences by that, that point, it was just super, uh, touristed out. Um, there was a lot of tourists there. Uh, everything that we were able to see was, um, uh, what's the, how high up was it? How high up is it? It, uh, I mean, it's really, far up in terms of it's above sea level, right? I mean, did you have any It's, any it's physical... actually at uh, 7,970 feet. It's 2,400 meters. Wow. Uh, Physically, how does it, how did it affect you guys? How did, how did it affect each of you to, to, to be that mm-hmm. far up? I've heard people say that they, you know, just getting up there was difficult just to get there. Either, anybody? George, uh, do you have any reaction George? to that? Well, I believe we actually took some time to get uh, used to the climate up there, um, especially during the, uh, the the bus trip up, and then we actually spent some time um, in the city. Um, in terms of that, I didn't really feel too much. Um, we, we already had acclimatized, uh, and we, we took the, uh, the the buses up uh, into the city. Mm-hmm. How about you, Gary? Well, my experience is... Uh... I had a team of volunteers that paid to go on my expedition. My expedition was sponsored by the, with UREP, it's University Research Expeditions Program from University of California. So you pay to go on scholars' expeditions. Uh, You pay extra than your flight and accommodations and so on. So we got down to Cusco. You know, first you fly down to Lima, which is on the coast. Mm -hmm. That's the capital. But then you go to the you fly into Cusco, which is the ancient Inca capital. That capital is almost as high as Mount Whitney here in California. Wow. It's 13,400 feet high. Uh, Is there a reason? Is that just the height of, you know, above sea level in the region? Or was there a strategic reason for the Incas to build their capital, their city, you know, these estates so high up? It was strategic. It's pretty, fairly central. But like the ancient Romans, the Incas built fantastic uh, roads and bridges across these chasms, amazing bridges uh, to unify the empire and everything. and uh, so Cusco was a major, uh, you know, the, the capital city had a huge fortress called Saxawaman overlooking the, uh, the city. And this fortress had a standing army there, you know, to protect it. And, uh, and, and it had these jagged uh, projections. And some of the stones building it, were, get this, were 200 tons. Wow. Unbelievable. 
uh, how the Incas can move all that and put them into place without mortar. It's amazing. I, could you say and a little I more remember, about that? Because I've heard stuff, that incredible things about the precision of their building, of their engineering, because they these huge stones, they didn't use mortar. They just had them kind of like placed in place. How did they keep the stones in place? Uh, by fitting them, they had an amazing system of carving them and then placing them. And I guess they must have been able to refit them and so on. In Cusco, there's an ancient Inca wall. I took a photograph of it. And it's the most famous wall in Cusco because it has one huge block of stone that has 12 sides. Mm-hmm. And each side is perfectly fitted with stones around it. And uh, I always heard that the stones are fitted so perfectly, you can't insert a knife blade in between them. And sure enough, I took out my knife blade and I couldn't insert it in between the cracks. I have heard of that. Yeah, that is it's extraordinary. What are the theories about how they built that? Gary? Yeah, well, the consensus is that they, they had a system of uh, levers and stuff and they were just masters at it. So they could carve the stones and then fit them. And if they didn't quite fit, they carve them some more and everything. And uh, they had a lot of time on their hands. They had a lot of uh, sculptors, you know, stonemasons and all that. Uh, so they were great builders, just like the ancient Romans. That's why, in part, they're called the, the Romans of the New it World. It sounds you know? like it. So then they had a good network of, uh, you said, a good network connecting their different locations. So roads and bridges and that sort of thing. Yeah, and they had these, uh, uh, you know, uh, runners that would... Um, provide information called Chotskys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually had way stations every uh, few miles or whatever it was. And uh, so one runner would run up to it. It's like a relay thing. And then the, the next runner would take the, the you know, message and whatever and run to the next station. And this way they had quick uh, as, as possible, quick information transfer. But also they moved certain things like the Inca, which is actually the name of the emperor, not the whole society. We call him Incas, mm-hmm. but the Inca is actually the, the emperor, the king. He would have like frozen desserts of snow run down to him every day from the peaks wow. of the Andes. Oh, man. So, you know, stuff like that. I mean, they had an amazing system. And wherever they, uh, they made amazing buildings, like you have this... Uh, round temple called the Cora Concha in uh, Cusco, which uh, was the Incas worshiped the sun. And that was a major temple of the sun. Uh, And they had a smaller one at Machu Picchu. It seems like every great civilization is built on this, this ability to have their communication, whether Roman or Mongol. George, what, what did, where did you go? So you, you went to Machu Picchu. Did you get to explore any of the other areas around uh, that the Incans, Incas had built or had created? I did not, unfortunately. Um, the, uh, the, the, the tour was pretty much set just for, uh, for Machu Picchu. How long did you, How long was the tour? I want to say uh, it was about an afternoon's worth. About uh, we were up there about three hours. Mm-hmm. It was super crowded, though. Um, too many tourists, to be honest. I want to come back to that because I do want to talk to you about talk to you about the tourists. But so this tour was this just of? I mean, I, I assume you were going to different spots in South America or different spots in Peru. What was what was the tour? Uh, it was specifically just to go uh, to Machu Picchu. So um, you just you just flew in for an afternoon. You just. Uh, Oh, no. I mean, we, we were there for maybe about two weeks, but we made a beeline straight to uh, Machu Picchu. We did go through uh, 
Cusco and uh, Lima, though, and I remember that. Uh huh. But you only got to spend just that that fixed period of time at Machu Picchu. That fixed period of time, yes. Um, by the time we got there, there were like lines and everything was super booked. We did have to uh, uh, pay for our own tour guides, though. They seemed to be just um, just folk that lived in the city um, that went up and did that for their living. Yeah, I imagine they could probably make a good living. So, um, so you're saying it was very touristy. Say more about that. What, 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 so you went in 2016, 2017. When was this? Uh, I want to say maybe it was about uh, 20, yeah, it's 16, 16, 17, it seems about okay. right. Uh, when we went there, everything was completely commercialized. Um, the city of Agua Calientes, I want to say, um, it was kind of like a, a mini, uh, not, not, not necessarily Vegas, but you can tell that a great deal of the, the livelihoods of the people who are living there was solely on the tourists. The food was fantastic. Every day. Uh-huh. Uh, ceviche. We uh, we had some of the the guinea pig that was out there too. Um, lots of different lamb and corn, corn everywhere. How does that compare to other cuisines that we know of? Like for the listener who hasn't had Peruvian cuisine or cuisine from that specific region of Peru, what's what's it most similar to? Oh, I don't know. It's really kind of hard to say. Um, I'm not that too familiar with Spanish uh, or uh, Mexican style dishes myself. Uh-huh. Uh, for me, it would it they they focus a lot on uh, the seafood and corn. Oh, see, well, of course, seafood that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I would I would imagine Gary w- was the diet. Do you know much anything about like kind of the diet of the Incas? Because I mean, imagine for a strong warrior empire, they probably made sure that they got a good amount of proteins and that kind of meal in. Uh, what do you know? Yeah, about they that? did. Uh, uh, yeah, when I first got there. Um, we stayed, uh, when we got to Cusco, we stayed in the Cusco Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I wanted to stay there because, get this, uh, Apostle Prototype Indiana Jones was no less than Charlton Heston in a movie called Secret of the Incas. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I've never heard of that. When, when did he, that movie come out? Uh, oh, like 1955. Okay. Uh, and he's in search of a lost treasure. He goes to Machu Picchu. Um, and uh, it's very Indiana Jones-like. And he actually has a leather jacket and a hat. I think it might have inspired Lucas in part, although I never heard Lucas say that. But mm-hmm. it's so similar, you know. Um, the movie is very Hollywood-esque because uh, it has this... Uh, Peruvian singer who was hugely popular at the time, Ima Sumac. Oh, she had, didn't she have uh, an incredible octave range? Like a multi-octave multi range that was out of this world? Yes. And so they, they have a scene in the movie where she's obviously on the Hollywood stage and she's supposed to be singing at Machu Picchu, which they have projected on a back screen. And then they have these actors portraying Incas around her that obviously are not Incas. Okay, yeah. And she's singing this... <laughs> This exotic song is so Hollywood, you know, it's just unbelievable. But but because, you know, Charlton Heston stayed there, um, I had to stay there. And it was a wonderful hotel. And when I first got to the hotel, uh, getting back to this uh, problem of the altitude, because it's so damn high there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I walk up to the hotel and there's this little uh, satyr-like boy sitting on a uh, an old statue uh, wearing a Inca cap or knitted caps that have ear flaps. Mm-hmm. 
and he's playing a panpipe, which they have traditional music in Peru. And he jumps up, and he's like the he's like the uh, what do you call him? the greeting guy at a hotel, the guy to greet you. Uh, the yeah, the uh, concierge maybe. Concierge, yeah, and. So he, he came over to pick up my bag. And I, I'm not going to let some little kid pick up my bag. I'm a macho archaeologist, okay? Um, so I go and check in. And then he said, oh, your uh, your room's on the second story. You know, you have to walk up the flight of steps. I walk up halfway in the flight of steps. I'm totally out of breath. Yeah, I, can, I bet. And the little boy comes and picks up my bag, smiles at me, and carries him up to my room. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, a, that's what I was wondering about, too, George, when you were in. Now, now George, a uh, question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, does your dog want to say anything? Oh, I'm trying to keep her quiet. Okay. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> dogs, are, dogs are welcome. Dogs are welcome to join in. So That night, we had a dinner at the hotel, and I, I pissed off my crew because I had cooey, which is – is a guinea pig. And, and my crew is saying, how can you eat this cute little pig? You know, and I said, well, I heard it was good. I just wanted to, you know, when in Rome, you want to, you know, eat the local diet. So I incurred their ire. In the middle of dinner, one of my lady crew members starts to stand up and she passes out, falls on the table, throwing all the dishes off the table. And the, the staff of the hotel acts like this is a common occurrence. She passed out due to what they called soroche, high-altitude sickness. And so they just came, put another tablecloth on, brought the dishes and the food back, you know, <laughs> as if nothing happened. But um, That's what I was wondering about from both of you. Just this getting, being that high up there has got to have some effect for people not used to it. I mean, obviously, for the people who live there, it's pretty pretty easy. I, I wonder, Gary, too, I mean, they're – their enemies, where where they are, where they were located, the Incas, and how high up? Do you know if they had any? Did anyone ever try to attack them there, or is it just because they they're in such a good strategic location that that just wasn't going to happen? I mean, no one could really. I don't think so. Yeah. <clears throat> they they had a very efficient uh, military, uh, like the Romans, mm -hmm. um, and and then to decrease that possibility of local revolts, uh, the uh, Incans did something the Romans didn't do. Uh, when they conquered a, a culture like the Moche down the coast, they would move most, you know, like three quarters of the population, they would force to move to other parts of the empire. And then they take people from those other parts of the empire and put them, you know, in the Moche territory. Interesting. So that the original, so that the original population was a minority of the population. It's like a forced um, integration? Yes. So they're, they're very good at subjecting people and maintaining their empire. They, they just didn't count on the superior uh, weaponry of the Spanish. Yeah. And again, the, also, the, the I always think about this for any of the native populations in the New World. Really, a lot of it, too, is that you've got that just the disease. I mean, I think, especially now as we sit in here during this pandemic and you realize what a an, oh, it, a, a it, microbe it, that you have no defense again can, against can do to you, it's it's really... It, 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 no, the Spanish brought in smallpox and so yeah, on. It, re yeah. it, re it, re 
it, it's estimated it killed millions. Millions of, of people. Of people. Yeah, from in uh, South America. And then yeah. it happened yeah. in North America too. So I mean it's a, it's an it's an amazing occurrence. I mean, I think we have now a much better sense of what that's about living during this COVID pandemic that okay, this is what yeah. happens to you and no matter how strong your army is, you're going to it's it, it will take you out and it will it will deplete your army as well so so gary when you were there george is saying it was very commercial when were you there i was there in 1983 and it wasn't near as commercialized there's a little machu picchu hotel um and uh very small i think there's only like 12 rooms and i i continually rented one of the rooms so that uh, if one of my crew members got sick or wasn't feeling well, they could stay in a nice room instead of camping. Now, we camped out, and I asked Dr. Yepis, the head of the archaeology at the park, if we could uh, camp in the ruins. He let us camp inside ancient Inca wow. ruins. It was fantastic. How was that? Sorry, George. So, uh, like, how did that George, feel? It, it was wonderful because. Uh, there's literally, Incas were into trapezoids. They had trapezoidal-shaped doors, trapezoidal-shaped windows, trapezoidal-shaped niches. I looked out to one of my room. I could see a uh, glacier-capped Andes, you know, upwards of 20,000 feet in the distance. Just spectacular, you know? Um, so anyhow, we had this room, and I let everybody stay there. But one night, uh, nobody wanted the room, so I thought, okay, well, I'll stay there for a change. It'd be nice take a nice shower and, you know, and uh, lounge out in, in a nice room. Well, I'd love to regret it because this is ironic. Um, I, I wake up for some reason and something was tickling my face and it turned out to be the largest spider I've ever seen in oh, my life. Man. I mean, you know, oh, wow. I mean, it was, I, I guess it was like a tarantula, but the thing was just gigantic and, so I knocked it on the floor, and, and like a scene I I saw in uh, Dr. No recently, <laughs> James Bond, uh, I took my shoe and I hit the damn thing so hard I sprayed his legs all over oh. the room, you know? Do you know what kind of spider it was? Did, did you find out what it was? No, I should have, but it scared the hell out of me. And interestingly, I didn't have any wildlife attack me, as it were, you know, sleeping in the ruins. So I just went back to the ruins, slept there. Yeah. But the wildlife in Machu Picchu, um, you know, like George's experience, there's very few people there. So you had this feeling of spaciousness, feeling of beauty. Uh, I remember seeing, uh, you know, Yamas walking around, just looking. You know, they have a kind of a regal beautiful way about them, you know, just beautiful. Um, and uh, and then one day I was buzzed. My face was buzzed, you know, on the way to the dig. Um, it was buzzed by the largest hummingbird I've ever seen in my entire life. It was unbelievable. How big? And How I big? just recently saw it. Uh, it was about the size of your outstretched hand. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and I recently saw a program about hummingbirds. It was an old uh, Hill Hauser show that was on TV here. And and they had one of them uh, at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles, you know, stuffed one. And Hill Hauser said, oh, my God, this thing is huge, you know, and, and, and it was. And he said it's from Peru. And sure enough, I, I saw a live one. So it was really great. So the wildlife was great. But 
some of it was scary. I'll, I'll tell you my story. It sounds like Indiana Jones. First day of the dig, I'm walking with Dr. Yepis and his assistant, Octavio, who are terrific. And for some reason, I got ahead of him, and then my, my crew and some of the other uh, Peruvian staff were walking behind us in the line. And the, we were going to dig in a, in a room uh, on the uh, east side of Machu Picchu, uh, very close to the edge of the cliff that goes down 2,000 feet to the, quote, snarling Urubamba River. So we're walking along the trail to the room, and then he points out the doorway. Doorway is about a meter, three feet wide. I start to step on the threshold, right? Dr. Yepes grabs me and pulls me back out of the way. And I thought, wow, did I do some faux pas? Was he supposed to be the one through the door first or something? You know, because I didn't uh -huh. know. He said, no, no. He points to the ground, to the threshold. Hergona serpiente muy pelogrosa. Uh -huh. So he was pointing at a snake. A snake coiled up on the threshold, right? That snake was a bushmaster. Wow. And and one of the deadliest snakes in the world. Wow. Uh, I, think, I think only the tiger snake of Australia is more deadly. If that thing had bitten me, I wouldn't be here today. It's amazing. That's so an this, amazing, you know, the, the snake, the spider. I mean, and you, yet you still stayed in all the rooms. Oh, yeah. In all the, in the... Yeah, yeah. And then, no, this, this isn't over. Um, Dr. Yuppas uh, had a holster with a flap on like Indiana Jones uh -huh. has, you know? So he pulls out his revolver and shoots the head of the snake off. And, and, and then he picks up the snake by the tail and throws it over into the chasm and the snake goes spinning down into the Wow. Th this was my introduction to my dig at Machu Picchu. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's a story worthy of Indiana Jones. Because that is pretty amazing. Well, what did you find? What did you discover on your on your dig on your journey there? Well, uh, I have a follow up to that, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I I gritted off the room into one by one meter, like roughly three feet by three feet, uh, you know, hypothetical squares. And then I have a there's a technique in archaeology called random sampling, because I didn't know exactly where to dig, but I we couldn't dig up the whole room. We had to dig up a sample. Mm -hmm. So I choose a, a, a few squares to dig, and one of them happened to be on the threshold, which is dirt, you know. Um, so we dig down there, and about uh, a foot down, we found a, a pot shirt, you know, a piece of a pottery. And I dust it off with my little brush, and it has a snake crawling across it with the same spotted design you know, as a snake I saw on the threshold. Interesting. Now, isn't that a strange coincidence? Yeah, and probably not a coincidence. And, and so we, we, we hired the, yeah, right. We hired these Inca uh, workers to dig for us, you know, in part. Mm -hmm. And when they saw that potsherd, they backed off, raised their hands up and backed off. It was sacred to them, you know. Mm. And I thought, wow, what a. What a discovery! Yeah. You know, so, did you, did you ever um, find out if it's tied, to the, tied the, to the room you were in that the snake was there? Was the snake the guardian? I don't know, but I think I think it was associated because uh, Doctor Yepes thought the room was uh, called a culture, which is a storage room, but I don't think so uh -huh. because 
when, when we excavated, we found pottery, but we didn't find uh, storage mm -hmm. pottery and undecorated pottery. We found only this elite Inca refined pottery. Wow. And uh, so that tells me, and also the room had niches in it. Um, and I think those niches are probably for little statues, statuettes of the gods, mm -hmm. you know. And so I, I think the room was like a shrine. I don't think it was a storage room. Was and, it like uh, a public shrine or was like a, a personal shrine for somebody who lived there? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a very good, uh, you know, question and uh, which deserves hypotheses to test. You know, you, you could test it out, but I, I didn't do it. Uh, but interestingly, when I was in Cusco, before I headed up to Machu Picchu, I went to the Ministry of Culture and uh, and I met, you know, uh, the superior of Dr. Yepes there. And my objective was to date Machu Picchu for the first time by radiocarbon dating. And so I, I was going after charcoal, which is the best thing to date if you can find it, or bones, you know, animal bones and mm -hmm. so on. Um, and this famous archaeologist, I don't want to say who he was, but he happened to be in the same office as this guy, you know, schmoozing him up, I'm sure. And this archaeologist is, you know, very egotistical. And, you know, he was jealous that I was even there and allowed to dig a Machu Picchu and he hasn't been, you know. And he said, oh, I can assure you that you're not going to find any charcoal in Machu Picchu. And I said, well, we'll see about uh -huh. that, you know, maybe you're. Maybe you're right. So get this. And when we started digging, we not only found charcoal, we found charcoal in every 10 centimeter, like six inch level going down. Every wow. level. And we dated the site. When I got back to UCLA, I uh, processed the samples and dated them on the uh, apparatus because I was a technician in the rail carbon dating lab. The same lab established by Dr. Willard Libby, who got a Nobel Prize for it in 1947 for inventing the technique. Um, and, uh, so the dates came out to that time because of the pottery, the archeologists, and I even saw, they had an exhibit on Machu Picchu in, I think, 2003 at the LA County Natural History Museum. And those archeologists were saying Machu Picchu was only, uh, inhabited by the Inca. And it's not true because we found dates that went back to 1450 AD, which corroborates the Inca mm -hmm. presence. But deeper down, we got dates, uh, you know, as, as far back as uh, 1400 A.D. And why would you, what makes you think that that wasn't Inca present? Because the Incas existed at that time frame, though, right? Uh, why do you think? No, excuse me. I, I mean, 1400. Uh, I think I'm. Oh, B.C. Yeah. OK, OK. Um, Interesting. OK, then who would yeah. that have been? What tribe would that have been? We don't, we don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not a proven archaeologist, to be honest, yeah. uh, but it's pre-Inca. So I think the site was uh, occupied by pre-Inca people and the Inca, you know, finally conquered the area. And then they built Machu Picchu. They called it Lost City. It really wasn't a city. There's only about 200 buildings there. Two things. One about the city and uh, one about the the place itself. I mean, one about the Incas and one about the place itself. First of all, you say the Incas conquered the place. Where were the Incas from initially? Where did the Incas come from such that they went to Machu Picchu? The, the, the uh, area of Bolivia, uh, Lake Titicaca, 
So they're from outside of modern yeah. day Peru. They moved into Peru and that became their central homeland. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now yeah. the Machu Picchu itself, what I've read is it's the, the belief now is that it was almost like a vacation home for the king. Is that what you see it as? Or? Yes. That, that, that's a consensus now. Um, you know, Hiram Bingham thought it was, um, what he had uh, different hypotheses. One of them was that it was a site for the, the virgins. Supposedly the Incas had virgins like the Vestal Virgins of mm-hmm. Rome, you know. Did they, um, in fact, have that? And uh, uh, they had some. Uh, but uh, the thing is, um, you know, uh, this is based on uh, Hiram Bingham had an osteologist, uh, you know, or a bone specialist who initially identified the burials they dug up as majority of women. Oh, interesting. Well, but but more recently, they've been re-examined, and the ratio between men and women burials are about the same, you know, by more sophisticated analysis. Why, was the, why did they mistake so that, that initially? Well, good question, because uh, there are identifying elements, uh, women's uh, skeleton versus a man's, particularly... Uh, in the pelvis, you have this sciatic arch, and in women, the arch is oblique to allow childbirth, and in men, it's acute. What, what I find interesting about that, and we talk about this on our podcast because we deal with history and matriarchies and ancient worlds, it's interesting how in other parts of the world, it's the opposite. They tend to find women's bones and identify them as male, and here you come to the New World yeah. in South America, they find men's bones, and they define them as female, whatever whatever that means, whatever that says. But it's well, at least, at least yeah. Hiram, Hiram Bingham's guy, guy yeah. did. You know, interesting. But, uh, but anyhow, um, I think Bingham knew that it wasn't Bill Capampa, but he thought it was uh, just a religious uh, shrine kind of a city. Mm-hmm. That was one of his interpretations. Um, that in part holds up, but uh, the, the feeling is now that it was a royal retreat, sort of like a Camp David for the Inca. Oh. Uh, and so he would go there and then there'd be a few hundred retainers, you know, that would uh, take care of him and take care of his people and the aristocrats with him and all that. Uh, but it's a way to get away from, you know, all the, the strife and situation in Cusco. Like the ancient Rom- Romans did that, the emperors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, went to Capri, you know, to, to escape Rome, yeah. you know. And all yeah, that no, every, I mean, every, every place, uh, the, the elite will do that everywhere. Yeah. So the thing is, uh, the most recent interpretation is Machu Picchu is, you know, was like a Camp David, but there are lots of temples there. There's a temple of the Condor is fantastic. Uh, there's shrines all over the place. Like I think the room I dug was a shrine. And one of the most interesting it's called the Intihuatana, and that's on a high-rise little uh, peak-like thing in Machu Picchu. George, I'm sure you went there, hiked up there. I'm sure I did. Yeah, it because it has this strange uh, boulder that's carved and then has a, ra- uh, a raised post-like thing in the middle of it. Um, and that's called the Intihuatana, or the Hitching Post of the Sun. And uh, so there's uh, services there. Uh, you know, ceremonially to tie the sun down, you know, and on the solstices to <clears throat> make sure it comes back the next year, that kind of thing. Well, in another part um, of the city is a rectangular building that has a uh, one wall is curved. 
And that's very significant because it's supposed to be like the Korakancha in uh, Cusco, uh, a temple for solar observations and worship. And so I was reading today in, the, in this book I told you about, uh, Dr. Krupp's Echoes of Ancient Skies, um, and he talks about uh, a researcher, Dr. David Dearborn, who interestingly is currently helping me with the Big Rock project oh, that you've been filming. Right. Uh, so uh, back in 1980, just not too long before I got there, he did this study of the site in, in uh, Machu Picchu, and it was built around a huge uh, boulder, a flat boulder, and they carved like a shelf on the boulder. Half the boulder was carved into a shelf that extended, I don't know, you know, 10, 12 feet. And on the summer solstice, the sun would rise and shine through a trapezoidal window and shine perfectly along the edge of that cut, the depressed area. Uh, so in other words, it correlates with the summer solstice. That's extraordinary. And then at a, oh gee, at about a 40 degree angle is another trapezoidal window, uh, again in the curved wall. And Dr. Dearborn is telling me today that he believes that was associated uh, with uh, also observing the sun. And uh, he thinks they did it in such a manner that they could predict how many days until the summer solstice. So even though if you have a cloudy day at Machu Picchu, as he said, uh, you know, because the sun would rise in that window in a certain way, they could tell, well, we still have, you know, 10 days until the summer solstice or something like that. And another correlation he found, interestingly, with the uh, window allowing the summer solstice to shine in uh, was a correlation with the Pleiades, the seven sisters, mm -hmm. which are, you know, for some reason, the Pleiades, which aren't dramatically bright stars, are important to cultures all over the world. The ancient Greeks had them. They're mentioned in the Odyssey. Uh, and... Uh, and, and the Incas revered them as well and everything. So uh, interesting correlations. But I, I didn't know that David had uh, published that before uh, and, and, and uh, that he was involved in that until today. And then he's helping me with the Big Rock site, which is a local solstice site. So I'm really happy to find that Just out. Just for the listeners so they know, the Big Rock site, both uh, Gar this is a site that Gary has been excavating as a kind of almost uh, one way to think of it as, as a new world Stonehenge. It's a, it's a solstice site. It's, it's in the Southern California area. It's uh, we won't give away the location that's in the Southern California area. It's in a mountain range uh, and it represents a very sacred site. And both George and I have been up there with Gary and it's an incredible location and we'll be sharing footage of it at some point uh, with everyone about it. Um, it's a native site. Also the tribe is the Quiche tribe, a native site. Uh, as, of course, the Incans are native peoples in South America. Well, guys, I just want to wrap up with this. I want to get your observations of what the experience of being at Machu Picchu did for you, like how, how it affected you, you know, for the listeners out there, why you would, you know, recommend that they go there as well. So why don't we start with you, George? What did that experience do to you? And then why do you think that might be significant for other people? I want to say the... Uh... The, the most vivid memory I have was actually getting through uh, the initial like uh, threshold gateway and being able to walk through the ruins. 
it was earlier in the morning and the clouds were still hovering over the peaks. And that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Well, how would you encourage them to go visit this site? Uh, I haven't had the opportunity to do it myself, but there was actually an option to hike on the opposite side of Machu Picchu. And uh, it was a longer, uh, that's a longer trip. I want to say it was maybe a few weeks extra. And you actually had the ability to like hike through the, um, and uh, Gary, you might know this. There's like a, a, uh, some sort of like desert or um, painted location where there's a lot of, um, was it? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I I didn't do enough research for this. No worries, but it, there's uh, a, there's a you there's a certain tour you would say people should really take to go visit there. Yeah, I would definitely take the uh, the land tour. Um, the um, the family members that I were with insisted on taking the bus and the uh, the uh, the more touristy route. But if you could, and if you had the ability to take the hike, uh, go and take the extra weeks. You actually camp out on uh, the the mountainside um, at the uh, the different um, I want to say like outposts as you go up, and I feel that would have been a much more meaningful uh, experience to had be I taken actually that. immersed in it. Gary, yeah. how about you? How did it impact you, and what would you recommend for our listeners? To the ancient Inca, Machu Picchu was a waka, what they called a waka, a place of the spirit. And I have to say, like George, when you're there, uh, you really feel spiritual and uh it's just so stunningly beautiful and every day these mists rise up the ruins and they kind of snake through the ruins uh in an unbelievable way and everything and at night uh the stars come out and you know it's the southern hemisphere so they uh they have different stars to look at than we do here you know the southern cross and so on mm-hmm. uh and so it's just by day or by night, it's just stunningly beautiful and it's spectacular location uh, that just inspires you. So, uh, yeah, I recommend that people can go. I'm sorry that there's mobs of people now because when I went, it was just unbelievably beautiful. It was ever thus. Well, I want to thank both of you gentlemen for uh, joining us today. This has been the 34 Associates Salon. We've been talking with George and Gary about Machu Picchu. Please come back for some more of our podcast on adventure, mythology, history, and history. I'm Sean Newcomb. Thank you very much.